Hello everyone, my name is Drew Ray, and this is episode 27 of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. In this episode, we're going to talk about the borderlands between safety and security. Outside of engineering, many people seem to use safety and security interchangeably. When I describe what I do for a living as safety engineering, the most common comment I get in response is about viruses and passwords. A Google alert for system safety gets triggered more often by ads for firewall software than for genuine system safety news. In the research world, though, the safety and security communities are quite separate. You'll see occasional attempts to bridge or reconcile the two domains by talking about dependability or assurance as umbrella terms to cover safety, reliability and security as a single package. And sometimes there'll be attempts to use safety techniques to address security issues or security techniques in the safety domain. But overall, there isn't a lot of joined up thinking. Whilst the fundamental techniques can be very similar, the culture and philosophy of security and safety are quite different. So in this episode, we're going to start off by talking to Dr. Ibrahim Hubley about the relationship between safety and security. We'll then talk a little about Stuxnet and some other ways that security threats can become safety concerns. I'm here with Ibrahim Hubley to talk about safety and security. Ibrahim, could you start by introducing yourself, please? Thank you, Drew. I'm a research and teaching fellow in safety critical systems at the University of York in the UK. My primary research is mainly in empirical software engineering for critical systems, specifically safety critical systems, such as those controlling medical devices or aircraft systems, and whose failure can lead to harm, mainly human harm. Recently, I've been interested in computer safety and security put together. So in other words, how cybersecurity vulnerabilities can develop into safety hazards. I also teach on York's MSc in Safety Critical Systems Engineering, where most of the students are practicing engineers. So if you were looking at the relationship between safety and security, I guess the first question is, what's the difference between safety and security? What do they both mean? Um, the two concepts are obviously related, though there are some subtle and important differences. Put simply, both safety and security are concerned with harm. With safety, harm is mainly physical in terms of death, injury or damage to property. Most importantly, harm is unintentional. It's caused by an unintended event or sequence of events from a combination of things like human errors, component failures, management failures, or failures in communication and interactions. In security, on the other hand, harm is intentional, caused by or initiated deliberately by an intelligent agent. Also, security is not only concerned with physical harm, but also covers non-physical physical conditions such as leaking confidential information to cause reputational damage. So both safety and security are concerned with harm, with a main difference, which is whether it's intentional or not. So what if I unintentionally have harm, but the only harm is that I've lost some data? Is that security or is that safety? Both relate to each other, safety and security. So I remember, for example, in one of your previous episodes, you talked about data safety. So, uh, so mainly it is how data failures 
corruption in electronic health records can unintentionally lead to patient, patient harm. Also, in a similar way, threats to our lives can result from someone hacking data buses in cars, for example, to reduce the effectiveness of braking or steering. So both have led or can lead to harm. In the case of data safety, it's unintentional. In the case of data security in cars, it's, un- it's intended. Actually, here, some people, let's put it differently. In safety, you are protecting the environment from your system. In security, you're protecting your system from the environment. So would it be fair to say the relationship is in one direction, that for safety, we're most worried about breaches in security that lead on to a loss of safety? Yes, that's, that's if you like, the subtle, the most important point in the relationship whether it's going to lead to harm and whether that's intentional. When we talk about safety and security, there's an obvious overlap. For example, if I talk about my personal safety on a train platform, I'm actually worried about poor security of the train platform that then is going to make me unsafe. Could you give me some examples of the way poor security might lead on to loss of safety? So here you mentioned trains. So I'll give you an interesting example from the railway industry. In Europe, there is a major program backed by the uh, European Union, which aims at replacing uh, the many different national train control and command systems in Europe with a standard system or standardized system. It's called ERTMS, the European Railway Traffic and Management System. Some colleagues at City University London carried out a study to examine examine the security impact of the new system, focusing on both the control and protection systems as well as the radio and communication systems. I'll I'll give you a link to that study and paper so you can put it on the DisasterCast webpage. Based on studying the conceptual specification, they didn't study trains or the actual signaling systems, just the specification. These researchers highlighted a number of undesirable outcomes. An interesting one relates to a general philosophy and specification, which is, if in doubt, stop the train. An intelligent attacker can easily exploit this principle or key requirement. It's possible for an attacker to exploit the fail-safe behavior of the system or the program and create a situation that causes a train or a driver to hold the system because... The, the driver is receiving conflicting information. So the driver is in doubt. And the best thing, or one of the best things that he might think can do is stop the train. And here a denial of service attack is, is obvious, where you launch an attack or the attacker can launch an attack at a certain time by arranging, arranging for a train to hold in a tunnel for a maximum disruption, which lead to a dangerous or danger, dangerous evacuation. So this is an example where a security denial of service attack can lead to unnecessary but dangerous evacuation. It also sounds in that case like the safety requirements, the fail-safe, almost competes with the security because having the fail-safe makes denial of service attacks Mm. easier. Is it always the case that we can improve security and then make things safer? Or are there lots of cases like this where safety and security actually conflict with each other? Mm. Actually, there, there, there are many situations where they, safety and security might be in conflict. 
and therefore it's always wrong to say safety and security are the same. So, for example, many safety critical systems are time critical systems. So take, for, for example, evacuation in, in the event of a fire. So in, in some cases, someone needs to initiate the evacuation procedures. Or another example, a missile system, which needs to be launched within milliseconds once uh, an attack or a target is, is found. So someone might want to increase the security of those systems by, for example, for the fire evacuation system saying, oh, we want to put a username and password before someone can trigger the alarm. So you can imagine here you have a delay, which is you need to put your password in order to, to trigger the alarm, but you might forget your password or just you might get it wrong. Also for a missile system, someone might say, let's encrypt the data. Okay, so we want to improve the security of that system. And again, this might mean that delays for processing the data, data conversion, and this again will delay processing safety critical operations for the sake of security. So, so here we have uh, two very important attributes, safety and security, they're in conflict. And if any, any, one, any of them fails, then you have ethical and moral implications, harm in different, in different forms. Sounds kind of like a high-tech version of putting padlocks on all of my fire doors. Mm. I've made it secure, but I've taken away the safety function. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. But here it's, it's far more interesting when it comes to cyber security, where security isn't visible, but suddenly it becomes visible if there's a conflict between wanting to address security and safety at the same time. We've got these competing demands. As a safety engineer, do I need to worry about security? Would it be appropriate to say, well, they're in competition, so I'll do the safety, the security expert can do the security? Sadly, I think security here suffers from what safety had suffered from for the last 20 or 30 years, which is it is still seen as a bolt on to a project. There are many different pieces of software that provide various security services, but they are generally not integrated into the system being delivered. So security, security is one of those attributes. Some call them quality attributes or dependability attributes, which cut across several, several layers and components. So you can't just say, I have the security component and someone will look after it. Also security, like safety, emerged because of weaknesses with many different components, many different interactions, or because of flaws in the specification, design, implementation, and operation, and therefore needs to be considered not just during development, but also through life, through, through the life of the system. So yes, security is like safety. It can't be subcontracted to someone else, and it needs to be considered from the start of the project, from the concept. Okay, that worries me a little bit. Because does that mean then that as a safety engineer, I need to be a security expert? What would I need to know extra on top of systems engineering to be able to do security analysis? In theory, and this is just in theory based on, on some studies done, security might not result in new hazards, okay? because those are at the, at, the, at the system level, at the interface between your system and its environment. But because of the security, security issues, there will be new contributors or causes for hazards. So as a, as a safety engineer, you need to worry about interfaces between safety and security analysis. In other words, identify 
issues with it within your system from which cyber attacks can exploit exploit these 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 weaknesses so in the same way i might identify that fire is a hazard mm. but get a fire and life specialist to analyze how to best protect against that hazard yes yes I've... or it's it's very 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 similar to human factors engineering where as a safety engineer you don't need to be the expert in human factors but once you discover that you have the human and it might fail you get someone who is an expert in human factors to help you bridge the gap between the two disciplines okay that makes sense okay that makes sense so another question increasing automation and integration opens up all sorts of new security attacks Five years ago, I didn't need to worry about someone hacking my car. It had a physical key. Um, and my TV was this standalone thing that didn't connect to the internet. Ten years before that, my medical records were all handwritten, whereas now they're connected. Is security getting to be a bigger and bigger problem when it comes to keeping things safe? Yes, you're right. Uh, in the past, there were few concerns regarding a malicious attacker in one part of the world attacking a system elsewhere. In many cases, they were prevented through physical separation. Now, with many systems connected through the internet or distributed networks, the security problem exists across many domains. So, uh, we should talk about one very popular virus or worm called Stuxnet because it illustrates what we're talking about here. So the Stuxnet is probably the most widely known example. It's an extremely complex and technically capable computer worm, which is self, a self-replicating computer program that in, in that particular case had targeted one particular software system, which is the Siemens SCADA system, targeting very specific locations, the Iranian nuclear processing facilities. So you can guess who have done that, but I'll leave it to, to, the, to your listeners. So the goal of the virus was to sabotage facilities using the software and to drive them outside of their intended operational boundary. Here you have a cyber security attack affecting the physical properties of a system. When it happened, allegedly, it caused those systems to fail and ultimately slowed down or delayed enrichment program. So it, it achieved some goal, political or something else. By the way, Stuxnet traveled using infected USB flash drives and local networks. So even local and private networks, which are not connected to the internet, are not immune now. Something like Stuxnet was obviously a very well-resourced and complex program. It didn't just involve releasing one virus on the web. It required these physical mechanisms, the USB sticks. There's some talk of even having local agents actually inserting some of the hardware. And it involved multiple different attacks put together in a very clever way. How scared should we be about this happening often? Are there a very small number of places around the world capable of doing this? Or should we start to worry about script kiddies being able to attack our cars and aircraft? Mm. Before answering this question, it's, uh, it's interesting to talk about different types of security attacks because arguably not all of them are bad. <laughs> so, so people or researchers or engineers talk about three types. The first one, they're called white hat attacks. They're ethical attacks 
where the attacker has the full permission of the system owner and it is done with the sole intent of improving the security aspects. Some, some, some people call them Tiger Teams, so they recruit Tiger Teams and they are paid out of money to do that. The second form is Black Hat Attack or Attackers. They do not have the full permission of the system owner and are for malicious reasons. For example, Stuxnet or someone hacking into a system, okay, like a banking system, to really know how how much bankers are really paid. The third category is gray hat attacks. They do not attack for malicious intent, but are not attacking with the permission of the system owner. So these attacks are used to inform both the public and the system owner of vulnerabilities. For example, similar to recent studies, some of them in the news, showing how security vulnerabilities in unmanned aircraft systems or cars can lead to hazardous behaviors. So back to your question, how worried, how worried should we be? And who should ultimately be responsible for that? Safety is again, or security, again, is very similar to safety. So in safety, we have this popular saying, which is safety is everyone's responsibility. So you can do the same with security. Security is everyone's responsibility. So uh, security is the responsibility of the state, businesses and individual. The state has some responsibility of enforcing certain regulations. Businesses have to promote good security practices and as good safety security culture. And individuals should be careful with how to share data and protect personal information. Is it possible to see genuine hacking terrorism in the future? Yes, it's possible. And we've seen that it is possible. Is it likely? I'll leave it to your listeners to answer this. Uh, Ibrahim Hapley, thank you for talking to us. Thanks very much. Thank you, Drew. The Uranium Enrichment Facility at Natanz is an important component of Iran's nuclear program. The facility uses centrifuges based on 1960s European nuclear technology. These centrifuges are inefficient and unreliable but they can be produced in large numbers within Iran, which is where they've got an advantage. To compensate for the inefficiency, the centrifuges are connected in cascades, with each feeding into the next, into the next, and so on. And to compensate for the unreliability, a fault-tolerant control system connects and disconnects individual units without needing to shut down the whole cascade, or indeed the whole plant. Despite this innovative arrangement, in 2009 and 2010, the plant suffered a dramatic drop in productivity. To continue the story, we're going to have to join the dots a little to a piece of malicious software that was identified by a Belarusian antivirus company and subsequently discovered on computers throughout the world, predominantly in Iran and Indonesia. For the sake of simplicity and storytelling, I'm going to assume from here on, as pretty much everyone does, that this software, the virus, was evidence of a deliberate attack on the Natanz plant. The attack required four steps to get from the outside to actually causing physical harm. Firstly, malicious software had to be installed on the Windows PCs inside the nuclear plant. This most likely happened using infected USB sticks and other devices carried into the plant by outside contractors. Possibly, but not certainly, the software was deliberately placed onto the contracted devices. Next, once it was inside the plant, 
the software had to spread from computer to computer. It used fairly conventional virus tactics to spread, but included some zero-day exploits, features that used security vulnerabilities that had not yet been publicly announced or used in viruses before. Once it had spread to lots of different PCs, the software then looked for the files used to compile programs for Siemens PLCs. PLCs are small computers, which are commonly used to control physical equipment. To program a PLC, you write the software on a desktop computer, compile it using a special program, and then upload it via a data cable. The malicious software changed part of the compiler libraries on the PCs, so that the next time each PLC was updated, it received the changed instructions rather than the correct code. These hacked PLCs then behaved normally, but sat watching for a prearranged set of conditions. When these conditions arrived, they pretended to still be behaving normally, but they were sending false data back to the operators, whilst they sent incorrect commands to the centrifuges. These commands sped up and then slowed down the centrifuges, potentially damaging them and making them much more unreliable. In order to get Stuxnet to work, the attackers needed to know a lot about the design of the target plant. They needed to know exactly which equipment the PLCs would be controlling, and what to tell the equipment to do. They also, of course, needed to know exactly what sort of PLCs to look for. So given this level of knowledge, it's really quite intriguing that Stuxnet didn't do more damage. Speeding up and slowing down the centrifuges without disabling the protection system is not the most damaging thing, or even the easiest damaging thing that could have been done. There's even some evidence that a previous version of Stuxnet targeting pressure management was even more subtle to the point where it didn't even cause noticeable damage. It's a bit hard to speculate about what exactly was motivating the attackers, because we don't have even more than a nod and a wink saying who the attackers were. Best evidence is that it was a joint USA-Israeli operation, but we don't know that. What we do know is that Stuxnet had all the ingredients necessary to cause a catastrophic industrial accident. And that basic recipe can be replicated by other people. If you know what sort of hardware your target is using, then creating a corrupt compiler library for that hardware is within the capability of any determined attacker. Finding a delivery mechanism into a high-security Iranian nuclear plant probably does require a state-sponsored hacker team, but there are plenty of industry or infrastructure facilities without that level of protection. Protecting against Stuxnet-like attacks isn't just a matter of active security. Passwords, patches and air gaps don't give 100% protection. Interestingly though, techniques from the domain of safety can be more effective. A diverse system design, for example, where the protection doesn't rely on the same PLC as the controls, does actually give very good defence. It's probably worth having a quick chat about security incidents in other safety-critical industries. In Railway, there was an incident reported in January 2008, where a 14-year-old used an infrared controller to remotely switch points, causing trams to derail. In December 2011 in the USA, there was disruption to rail signals by a cyber attack. From the publicly available information in this case, it appears that the signals went into a failsafe mode after they were pinged by a sweeping attack that was not specifically aimed at the railway. It was just as a side effect it happened to hit the IP addresses that had the signalling equipment. 
As Ibrahim mentioned, this is a general problem with railway systems. The default behaviour is always to move to a fail-safe shutdown state, which is not necessarily always the safest thing to do. In particular, it invites denial-of-service attacks. In the realm of automobiles, Ross Anderson's team at Cambridge have demonstrated plausible attacks on cars. At the moment, this is purely white-hat proof-of-concept work, and it needs physical access to the car, but it does show what might be possible. There have even been a couple of papers published on aircraft hacking, but everything I've seen so far seems overhyped. It requires special equipment to be installed on the aircraft, and once an attack has got enough physical access to install their own equipment, protection from electronic attack is kind of a moot point. The definitive work on Stuxnet is a paper called To Kill a Centrifuge by Ralph Langner. His conclusion is that safety-threatening cyber attacks on physical systems are plausible and are within the reach of non-state actors. Bottling on virus protection, even segregating networks entirely, won't be enough. However, appropriate system design can create a very strong passive defence, rendering most cyber weapons useless. Here he points out that we run into the political problem that governments don't necessarily like strong cyber defences in private hands. That may be more of an issue than the technical problem. And that's it for this episode of DisasterCast. If you've already reviewed the show or told a friend, thank you. That's a good habit to get into, so why don't you do it again? If you haven't, then imagine that warm feeling you could have the next episode, replacing that little twinge of guilt you're feeling this time. With just a few moments on Twitter, iTunes, Facebook or Stitcher, you could join the elite ranks currently swelled by Rob McDermott, Spear Havoc, Tom Hodden, C. Jarvis, C. Goodchild, Mr. Smith, Mog666, Kate MS101, Dance and Eyes, Gary Homed, Neil Walk, Kfix, Paradigm, Beepim, Not Me Chief, Morgan Dalton, Rich Black, Sid, and Crestomancy. More information about this and other episodes is available on disastercast.co.uk. I'll also be turning some of the episode segments into longer posts with pictures, which I'll be posting at dependablesos.org. Episode 28 will appear on 11th of March. Keep safe. Mm-hmm.